it's for me a genuine delight um, to be here for a number of reasons. First of all, because it's the first inaugural conference of the Centre for the Study of Governance and Transparency. Uh, I warmly welcome the setting up of that, the setting up of an organisation such as the Centre for Transparency and Governance will immensely contribute, I hope, to discussions and debate about how you fight corruption throughout the world. It coincides, obviously, with the passage of the Bribery Act in the United Kingdom, and I very much hope it's an indication of the fact that within the United Kingdom, but contributing to a global debate, the United Kingdom will finally and properly take its place as at the forefront of fighting corruption throughout the world. I'm very grateful to Jonathan, uh, the president, principal or master, I'm not quite sure which, of Kellogg College, but the leader of Kellogg uh, uh, College, uh, for A, his introduction, but B, the fact that Kellogg College has become the home for the centre. It's obviously a very appropriate place for it to do so, and it helps to give it weight uh, throughout the world. So I'm absolutely delighted to be able to be here at the first inaugural uh, conference in relation to it. Uh, I don't know the, the background or work of the people who are here, but at any conference in relation to bribery and corruption, which is what this is about, it is important to say that bribery and corruption is utterly corrosive in terms of individual people throughout the world. If the government and the public officials who run a nation do it on the basis of bribery, then they completely undermine values which allow for the peoples of their country to thrive. And in every part of the world where there is bribery and corruption, there is a government that is unable to lead its people and provide support for its people that is required. There is no way of dealing with bribery and corruption except upon an international basis. The peoples and countries of the world have got to cooperate together in order to fight bribery and corruption. The United Kingdom, for years and years and years, signed up to a range of international agreements and international organisations which were opposed to bribery and corruption and made public statements internationally in relation to bribery and corruption, but were fantastically slow in committing itself to a law which really gave teeth to its commitment in relation to anti-bribery. In the dying days of the Labour government, on the 10th of April 2010, the Bribery Act finally got the royal assent, and it got the royal assent in what was called the wash-up, which means after the general election had been called, without going through all of its parliamentary processes, but by agreement between the two main parties, it was agreed that it would get through broadly in the form in which the government had introduced it. Uh, I was a member of the government for 10 years, and it took us 13 years to get it through. But we got it through, and we are just, as a nation, on the cusp 
of introducing it. It, take, it becomes law on the 10th of April 2011. There is a last-ditch attempt by, I assume, various corporations to try to prevent it coming into effect in its full splendor. I have the pleasure and privilege of reading the Evening Standard three or four weeks ago in which there was a thunderous editorial saying nobody opposes bribery more than us here in the Evening (laughs) Standard. Uh, But I just wonder, the editorial said, whether or not the British government have gone a little too far in relation to what they are doing in relation to bribery and corruption in the Bribery Act 2011. You've got to understand, the editorial said, that where you are doing business abroad, very often entirely honourable British companies have to uh, compete with others, and those others are paying bribes. So I just wonder whether or not we should not enforce or not bring it into effect in its full force. Everybody with any degree of influence, should say, and this is true, that quite separately from the moral arguments in favour of enforcement of the Bribery Act, it would send a message to the world that contrary to our previous commitment, exemplified by the passage of the Act a year ago, we have now decided to retreat from our position of playing by the international rules. It would send a message to everybody, every country in the world, that our commitment was lukewarm, and it would be disastrous. So if you have any influence in the world, tell people this would be the worst thing to do. I believe that the United Kingdom has two particular characteristics. It is a country that always prides itself on playing by the rules, but secondly... It is a country as well that prides itself on understanding and cooperating with other countries' views of their place in the world. I am always incredibly impressed when I see any member of the royal family visiting a foreign country. For example, when Her Majesty the Queen went to Saudi Arabia some years ago, she went dressed in clothes that looked almost like a yashmak. I didn't notice when the King of Saudi Arabia came here that he came dressed in a suit. The difference between the two of us is that when we go, we think we should try and cooperate as much as possible. That attitude, over a very long period of time, we have used wrongly as an excuse to justify misconduct in other countries. But our first characteristic namely being a country that plays by the rules, means that when we clearly, as a nation, change the rules, then we are a law-abiding nation, and the effect of changing the rules will be that the culture in our country will change as well. The, the, The act that we have passed effectively has a number of characteristics. First of all, it creates four new offences. One is an offence of bribing, whether you're bribing a foreign official or whether you're bribing somebody in a private company. The second offence is being bribed, whether you are an official here or abroad or whether you're, for example, the procurement manager for a private company. Thirdly, it creates the offence of bribing a foreign public official. 
And that third offence is one agreed to across the world in a whole range of international instruments. And the fourth offence that it creates is failing to prevent bribery if you are a commercial concern. Those four offences go as far and beyond most other countries' bribery acts. For example, it goes beyond the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 1977. First of all, in so far as it's created the new offence of failing to prevent bribery. And secondly, because it has no defences of either paying facilitation payments or the defence of reasonable promotional activities. So we have done incredibly well in relation to the act that we have passed by comparison with other countries' anti-bribery acts. We stand tall in the world in relation to that. There are four other aspects that are worth mentioning. First of all, this act has extraterritorial effect, and that has two significances in relation to it. First of all, even if you are a company that is not incorporated in the United Kingdom, if you carry on business here to any significant extent, then anything you do throughout the world, even if it has no connection with the United Kingdom, is within the jurisdiction of the UK courts. And I say the UK courts because even though bribery and corruption are devolved matters, which means it would be the Scottish Parliament that would govern it, the Scottish Parliament agreed that our Bribery Act would apply to Scotland as well. As far as extraterritoriality is concerned, imagine a large American multinational company with a place of business here, a branch office or a branch here. Assume that it is involved in bribery in South America, bribery that in no way touches the United Kingdom, the British courts and the British prosecuting authorities have jurisdiction over that event. The reason why the extraterritoriality is significant is because it means that corporations cannot, they cannot try to cox and box with different jurisdictions and say, here you don't have jurisdiction. It means that regulators and prosecuting authorities throughout the world can cooperate, including the United Kingdom, to look at worldwide bribery and decide where in the world they want to prosecute. The second point about it is that it significantly increases penalties in the United Kingdom. In particular, it increases the maximum period of prison that you can go if you commit offence from seven years to ten years. Thirdly, in line with the international conventions, it says that facilitation payments are not to be regarded as an excuse. Facilitation payments mean, in effect, payments that have to be made in order to get services that you would otherwise, the state would otherwise be required to give you, or parastatal organisations. So, for example, in some countries, if you want to get your telephone connected in less than six months, you've got to pay a facilitation payment to the telephone company. The 
American commercial world was able to persuade Congress in 1977 that facilitation payments should be regarded as something that was excusable. We didn't agree to that. As the bill was going through Parliament, uh, it was said that the question of facilitation payments would be left to the prosecuting authorities to determine whether they were going to prosecute in relation to facilitation payments. It was acknowledged that there might be circumstances in which facilitation payments would be justified. For example, what happens where you can only get an anti-malaria vaccine in some countries if you pay a facilitation payment. Uh, and it was expected that the director of the Serious Fraud Office would be moderately gentle in relation to facilitation payments. Well, he has not been. He has made it absolutely clear that he would regard any, save the most exceptional facilitation payment on a one-off basis as being something that would be subject to prosecution. So he has been very tough in relation to that particular aspect of it. The fourth aspect of it is that reasonable promotional or hospitality activity is not excused specifically. It's important to identify whether or not something is giving, for example, a foreign public official a bribe. So having somebody over genuinely to visit your factory, which might involve paying the airfare, might well not fall within bestowing a benefit on that person if the visit is genuine. But having 20 people over to attend a course in electronics in which a half-hour attendance was required and otherwise two weeks were spent staying at the Royal Grosvenor Hotel, London, would be. And there couldn't be any argument in those circumstances as there could be under other statutes provided by other countries that this was something that was legitimate as reasonable promotional expenses. So we have, as a nation, produced a really tough act. The Serious Fraud Office are going to be the main enforcers of the act. Richard Alderman, who is the director of the Serious Fraud Office, is very happy to indicate what this means in terms of standards, but he is pretty clear that he is not going to use prosecutorial discretion in order to soften or reduce the full rigour of the Act. So two very important building blocks are in place. But fraud and corruption, bribery throughout the world, is incredibly difficult for nations properly to deal with. We know who famous bribers are in the world. British Aerospace, BAE, oh, I hope I, B, BAE, B, exactly, I'm sorry, I don't, want to, I don't want to malign some other company. Uh, you know the one that I mean. And if I have, by mistake, mentioned somebody else, I unreservedly withdraw the imputation um, against them. BAE is a huge company that almost certainly employs more lawyers than either the Department of Justice or the Serious Fraud Office in its uh, anti-corruption uh, areas. And the Serious Fraud Office and the Department of Justice 
in the work that they do will be considering other, country, other companies as well as BAE. They will have BAE, although we know that they had sophisticated and perfectly uh, legitimate, apart from the bribery aspects, work <laughs> being done to try to defend themselves in respect of the investigations and the prosecutions that were brought against them. Over the 33 years that the uh, Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act has been in force in America, the Department of Justice has developed a series of methods by trying to deal with what is in effect an inequality of arms between the big companies and the individual investigative bodies. Two of the particular techniques that are used are, first of all, developing a culture where big companies will themselves engage people to investigate whether or not they have been guilty of bribery throughout the world, and then turning themselves in to the relevant regulatory authorities or prosecutors with a view to doing a settlement with the prosecuting authorities, which in effect cleanses the stable, amounts to an admission of guilt, and depending on the terms of the bribery or corruption, involves some very severe penalty. The work of doing the investigation is in effect paid for by the company itself. The benefits to them of doing it is that they are in effect allowed to move to another chapter. But because the investigation is being paid for by them, then the prosecuting authorities have the means by which they can deploy resources which they're not paying for and which don't deploy resources that would be otherwise used to investigate other people. The second tactic that has been used and used very effectively is where one finds a company that has been endemically corrupt over a long period of time, then as part of the agreement that will be reached with the company that's committed the bribery and corruption, appoint a, usually a firm of lawyers, but sometimes a firm of accountants, to monitor its conduct over a long period of time, five years, ten years. The monitor paid for by the company, reporting to the Department of Justice, the SEC, and if it happens here, the SFO, so that you can see precisely what's happening in relation to the company. Means by which you both bring people to book and you make sure in the future that change occurs. These are techniques not currently employed in the UK, but if the UK prosecuting authorities are to be effective across the board and to deal with the inequality, I would envisage that those sorts of uh, techniques will be adopted here as well. There is another aspect of it which is equally important in my view, which is the prosecuting of individuals. The people who very frequently commit foreign bribery or corruption are big corporate entities. The means by which you make big corporate entities comply with the law is generally by affecting their reputation, but also making the leadership of the company responsible for what has happened. And 
the director of the Serious Fraud Office and the Department of Justice in the United States of America have made it clear repeatedly that where there is evidence that individual leaders of companies have been either involved in bribery or corruption themselves or turned a blind eye to it and let it happen in a leadership role, then they will have no inhibition about bringing proceedings against them. And when you feel your own neck is on the block and you might end up in prison, then that is the most salutary way of ensuring that people uh, do something about it. And already in the United Kingdom, before uh, the Bribery Act 2010 has come into force, the Serious Fraud Office has tooled up in terms of increasing the numbers of lawyers it's got dealing with bribery and corruption, and secondly, has brought as well prosecutions against companies, but also against individuals with a view to changing the culture in this particular country. Now, there is in the UK the fourth offence that I referred to, failing to prevent corruption. The failing to prevent corruption offence arises where if anybody on a company's behalf bribes somebody in order to procure a deal, get a contract, maintain business. And the Act is incredibly wide in relation to what it catches. The company itself doesn't need to know it's happening. The company itself doesn't need to employ or engage the person who has done the bribe. If somebody bribes on its behalf and procures a benefit for it, then the offence is committed. That is a very far-reaching offence. There is a defence in the Act that the company on whose behalf the bribe occurred took adequate steps, had adequate procedures in order to prevent bribery. So the effect of the Act is to place on commercial concerns, because it's a, an offence that only applies to commercial concerns, it places on those commercial concerns the obligation to make sure it's got in place adequate procedures to prevent bribery. Now, what are adequate procedures to prevent bribery? It will obviously be a question of fact and degree in every case. It will depend upon the nature of the organisation. A three-man business making cakes in Walthamstow that occasionally sell cakes to France will probably have a lesser obligation in relation to its bribery procedures than BAE will have. As the bill was going through Parliament, there was very considerable concern expressed by businesses. Well, we don't know what um, uh, is adequate procedures. And a new section was added to the bill, Section 9, which required the state, the government in the United Kingdom, to produce guidance as to what constituted adequate procedures. And uh, at the end of last year, in November 2010, the Department of Justice in the United Kingdom produced produced a document for consultation as to what constituted adequate procedures. Uh, the consultation period is now over, and sometime this month, 
the uh, Department of Justice will indicate what the final guidance is in relation to adequate procedures. And it is worth identifying the six principles that the Department of Justice have identified as being the six principles that matter in relation to uh, preventing bribery. The first one is that companies should have a proper risk assessment of business that they do. If you're going to a country where bribery is rife, that increases the risk. If you are doing business with somebody or some organization that has a history of being corrupt, that increases the risk. If you are doing business with a partner who is uh, previously guilty or there is suspicion around, that equally uh, uh, increases the risk. Principle number one, assess the risk that your company has of being involved in bribery. Secondly, have in your company a top-level commitment to preventing bribery. What that means is work must be done from the top to create a culture in your company that bribery is not acceptable. And that means things such as there being clear statements from the board, from the chairman, from the chief executive, that bribery is utterly unacceptable. Third thing is do due diligence before you enter into transactions. So if you are going to, a going to do business in a country where corruption is rife, make inquiries before you enter into a contract about what might be required of you in relation to it. If you're about to do business in a country, for example, where you're going to buy or sell something and you believe that you're buying or selling it at something other than the market price, look and see, as a matter of due diligence, whether there is something suspect about the transaction. Look to see what the reputation of the party with whom you are doing business is. Do due diligence in relation to the bribery issue before you enter into the final contract. So third principle is due diligence. Fourth principle is there should be clear, practical and accessible practices and procedures within a company identifying for individual employees what the position in relation to bribery and construction is. That should involve the following. Clear statements that the company is against bribery. A clear statement of what the law is. Guidance on political giving and, inverted commas, charitable giving. There is no clearer indication very frequently that bribery is going on if than making significant donations to a political group or a political party or indeed something that is a charitable organisation which may well frequently be a front for political activity. Make sure that there is available where appropriate information as to what anti-corruption guidance is available in the sector in which you operate. So the extractive industries have, for example, published guidance. If you are an extractor of minerals, look to see what the sector is advising. In big companies, have a specific procedure available which pre prescribes what is to be done if there is a report of bribery or possible bribery being sought. Have, as well, in place proper whistleblowing protection. One of the things that most 
assists in relation to the fight against bribery and corruption is individuals within organisations blowing the whistle to the press or to the authorities about what's going on in that particular organisation. In order for that to be an effective um, uh, uh, protection, there needs to be in place in the organisation well-known and well-accepted procedures about how whistleblowing is to be dealt with. So that's the fourth principle, clear, practical and accessible practices and procedures in place. The fifth principle that the consultation paper refers to is effective implementation. They are clear in the document that a policy mouldering on a shelf will not do. There has to be steps taken, again depending upon the size of the organisation, that will bring the policy to life. Who is responsible in the organisation for bringing it to life is important to identify. There needs to be proper internal communication of the policies. There also needs to be clear external communication of the policies. Your website should make it clear that bribery and corruption is not acceptable. In dealing with people, there need to be procedures in place as to how you make clear that that is the position. There needs to be training within the company. And again, uh, if you are the three-man or three-person cake shop in Walthamstow, these will not apply because broadly selling cakes to people in Paris does not normally give rise to much risk. But if you are the big company, then you've got to do these things. There needs to be a process of internal reporting to top management about how the implementation procedure is going. There needs to be arrangements for monitoring. Uh, there needs to be, as well, a clear timescale for implementation. And there needs to be disseminated proper penalties for breach of agreed policies and procedures within the company. And there needs to be the date fixed for a proper review of how the procedures are going. That's the fifth principle, which is effective implementation. And the sixth principle is monitoring and review. You need to build in to what you are doing uh, a process of both internal review and external review of how the process is going. That will frequently mean, for example, signing up with an organisation, perhaps in your sector, where they will externally verify that which your procedures involve. Now, going through it like that makes it sound quite onerous. It isn't that onerous. It most particularly, I believe, requires a genuine commitment, identifiable to employees, identifiable to people who deal externally with the company, that you are genuinely committed to preventing bribery. And once there is that, ex in, once there is that genuine commitment, then most things will fall into place. There are, in so many other regulatory areas, processes that are second nature now to most companies. For example, complying with requirements in relation to health and safety. For example, producing proper financial statements that are accurate. For example, complying with the criminal law in relation to the quality of goods that are produced. 
in relation to bribery and corruption, a company dealing with those processes should get into the same position as they are in relation to other areas of the law. I believe that in the United Kingdom we have done both the political work and the legislative work to put ourselves in the position where we can properly say that we are setting our face internationally against bribery and corruption. We are saying as a, as a, as a legislative body in Parliament and we are saying as an executive that no longer is it possible to justify bribery and corruption abroad on the basis that's the only way you can do business in that particular country. We have said that excuse no longer applies. Yes, there will be people in business who say, well, if we don't do that, we won't get the business and the people of the United Kingdom will suffer. Well, that might be right on an individual case. But if you want properly to get rid of the corrosive cancer of corruption against the world, then the short-term price has got to be paid in the interests of long-term transparency and honesty in relation to commercial business. So we took much too long to do it. We were reviled in many parts of the world for not doing it. But we've done it. We've done it properly. We've increased our enforcement staff to make it work. And I started by saying that we are a country which plays by the rules. We are a country that plays by the rules. We've now unequivocally changed the rules, and I don't think it will take that long for the culture in this country to change along with the legislation which has changed. So I'm very, very sorry we didn't do it till the very end, but we did it, and now is the time to ensure that there's no backsliding in terms of allowing there to be any delay in bringing the Act into force. And now is the time as well to proselytise right across the world about what we stand for as a country in relation to bribery and corruption. And the values that we stand for will be enforced by the criminal law. Thank you very much indeed.